Hey everybody, this is Mark Levine and you're listening to episode 16 of the NYC Real Estate Podcast. This podcast is presented by EBMG and what's EBMG? It's my property management company in New York City and what we're doing on this podcast is talking about all things real estate related and it could be New York City, it could be New York State, it could be federal, but there's a lot of interesting topics and today we have a special guest, but before I get to that, remember that you could email the podcast at nycrealestatepodcast.gmail.com. Again, that's nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. And we love taking questions and they oftentimes make them into future episodes. So if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send them my way. But today we have Edward Taylor, Esquire. That means lawyer. Yes, it, it does. <laughs> From Taylor, Eldridge and Endress, PC. And you're located out of Smithtown. And welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you very much. So we're going to, I'm going to let you go into um, your background so that everybody is aware of that. But today's episode is devoted to emotional support animals, ESAs, we'll call it for short. And it's a topic that I've been really interested in figuring out from somebody like yourself that um, is a professional at it. So why don't we give you the floor for a few minutes and you can tell us all about yourself. Uh, well, about myself, we're from a, uh, a law firm uh, in Smithtown, as you said, five attorneys. Uh, we like to say that we are, uh, do mostly real estate-related uh, things, and I would say about uh, close to two-thirds of our work is representing community associations in Nassau and Suffolk, uh, meaning uh, condominiums, co-ops, and homeowners associations, uh, from the Queens-Nassau border out to uh, Montauk and uh, Greenport. And we provide uh, legal services to them, advice uh, and, and consultations for a, a number of large number of different communities. We also do uh, real estate uh, transactions, commercial and residential landlord-tenant work, um, and some related litigation. And the way that we met was through the CAI show, um, Community Association Institute and their Long Island chapter. And yes, which was started about uh, 12, 13 years ago and has grown into a, uh, a major player, I think, in the field where they uh, are really the only organization on Long Island that provides opportunities for board members of community associations to have uh, outside education and networking with other board members, with other professionals. It's a great uh, uh, opportunity for them to, to get up to speed on, on how to do their job as board members of communities. Well, I appreciate you coming in today and taking the time to talk to us and sharing your expertise. And there's a lot of people that are interested in this topic and, and uh, specifically. So why don't we start with the definition of an emotional support animal? Um, do you want to lead us through what's the difference? What sets apart an emotional support animal from it, from any other animal? Well, let's first talk about something that people are mostly familiar with, which is service animals. A service animal is an animal that uh, provides a specific service to a disabled or handicapped individual. Uh, the most classic example is a seeing eye dog. There are hearing eye dogs. Mm -hmm. There are all sorts of animals that are trained to provide specific services uh, to people with a variety of different disabilities. The key there to a service animal is it's an animal that's been trained to provide a service. Uh, obviously, seeing eye dogs go through year, uh, years of training, as do other service dogs. Uh, an emotional support animal is an animal that provides uh, service to disabled or handicapped people as well. But it's not a service that they're trained for. It's a service 
where they provide emotional support to that disabled or handicapped person. We're talking now about an emotional or mental disability, uh, people who maybe suffer from uh, extreme anxiety, uh, bipolar disorders, um, post-trauma stress disorder, right. those kinds of things. And they need a pet in order to help them literally get them through the day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the definition for uh, an emotional support animal. The law, where did this tie into our topic today for emotional support animals, in, specifically in community associations, although this applies to any kind of a housing situation, if a resident wants to move in, and there's a no pet or a no animal policy that they have in the community. The law says, both state, both state and federal laws state that you have to allow that person who has a disability and has a disability where they need an emotional service animal uh, to be able to bring that animal into the community. So there are federal and state laws um, with the Federal Housing Act, FHA, and New York State Executive Law they're requiring changes to policies and physical layouts in order to accommodate people with disabilities. So disabilities in this um, discussion, are we talking about physical? Are we talking about emotional? The physical disabilities are usually the ones where you have a service dog mm-hmm. uh, who is able to overcome those physical dis- help you overcome those physical right. disabilities. The ESAs are usually because you have some kind of a, a mental or emotional problem Uh, The difficulty with ESAs is that, uh, let's take service animals, usually the disability there is fairly clear. Uh, Someone has hearing problems, they have sight problems, they have mobility problems. The disabled people who suffer from emotional or mental disabilities, obviously their disability is not always clear. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that they can't sleep at night, the fact that they have trouble socializing, the fact that they're anxious uh, when they're in social situations isn't necessarily something that's uh, evident uh, by by an observer. So a lot of times there's some suspicion about, is there really a disability here? Right. And people do tend, I will say right from the outset, uh, to sometimes, uh, it's unfair uh, to do this, but they do sometimes try to use the emotional service animal as an excuse for getting a pet into a community and claiming they have a disability. That's where this issue gets so controversial. And that's why the application process should be standardized, right? So we have a board that is looking over their building. They have a unit owner or a shareholder that comes in and says, I need an ESA. What's the protocol? What's the process that they should uh, require from this person who is requesting access to the ESA? Here's there's some sensitivity here also because these are medical issues and you're not allowed to pry too deeply into people's medical history or medical background. Uh, the law says that you can require them to submit a letter from a medical professional who is treating you uh, to verify that you do have a disability, the exact disability they don't necessarily have to state, but they do have to verify that you are suffering from a disability. Can I jump in and ask a question? Yes. So a board is asking for a medical opinion. Can they say, I require it from a psychiatrist, I require it from your 
um, physician. I require it from any number of doctors. What's the stance on requirement? Can we not dictate which doctor it comes from? The requirement is that the uh, letter come from a medical professional who's treating you. Uh, I don't think it can, uh, the board can require it, require you to go to a certain type of a doctor. If they get a letter from a doctor who has been treating you and has diagnosed you with a disability, I think that's going to be upheld, uh, let's say, if it went before a court and was challenged. A court's going to uh, verify that that uh, medical professional, even if it's a, uh, a general practitioner or an internist, uh, doesn't have to be from a uh, psychologist, psychiatrist, somebody who deals only with mental health. Fair enough. I go, I have a dog, um, I go online and I put in all the information and I get an ESA certification online and I try to provide that information. Is that a valid use of that um, certificate to come into the building with this ESA dog or do I, instead of showing the online certificate, do I need to still go through the process of getting a separate letter from a, a medical professional? Uh, yeah, the certificate is worthless. Okay. There's no requirement for a certificate. Uh, you can get them online, as you said. I think the only hurdle is uh, paying the fee. Yeah. Uh, I think I've seen fees as low as $8. Wow. Uh, they've never seen your dog. Uh, and it's really irrelevant because nobody even has to see the dog. As I said, the dog does not have any training, not required to have any training. Uh, so there's no certificate for an animal that's really valid in this sense. Um, uh, the letter from the medical professional is what's uh, required. Uh, it shouldn't be from uh, a doctor who's not treating you, somebody in California or Minneapolis. That's really uh, not going to be correct unless you can show that you're flying to California and Minneapolis right. for treatments. So we're clear that um, an ESA or a special um, needs dog or pet, let's say. No, it's not a pet. It's a dog. It's an animal. An animal. Uh, I'm going towards the... The pet rules, um, let's say a building says, if you have a dog, we're going to charge you $50 a month for having that dog because it's wearing and tear on the building and the staff has to clean it up. Can this, does this ESA in any way get uh, charged under the normal rules of a building that says if you have a, a pet, that it's that monthly fee? Or does this, because it's an ESA and it's not considered to be quote unquote a pet, do they bypass the ability of the board to impose the fee? First of all, we should, I should say that the law states that you, the board, uh, in, in connection with a, with a community association, uh, needs to, to change or alter its policies in order to accommodate a person with a disability. Uh, by extension to what we're talking about today, if my request is because I have a disability, I need an emotional support animal, and the board has a no pet policy or any kind of restrictions on pets, they have to waive those policies, assuming the request is genuine and, 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 and verified. Yeah. Uh, if there's any rule that would serve as an obstacle to that pet uh, that's unreasonable or unnecessary, then that rule would have to be waived. Any kind of a fee any kind of a deposit. Some boards say, well, if you're going to bring in a, a pet, but you have to pay a $500 security deposit in case there's damage to the property. Those things you would not be able to uh, enforce because they would be a barrier to that person having a dog or a, a, right. an animal on the property. There are rules that do apply, that could apply. So if you have a rule 
that uh, pets have to be, if there are uh, animals on the property, they have to be on a leash while they're on common property. Mm -hmm then that law would apply because that's more of a safety issue to have right. to be controlling the, and, the, the dog. And then if the house rules in this case say, okay, pets that are off of a leash or animals that are off of a leash get a fine of $50 for the first infraction or whatever the house rules call for, then they would also be subject to those fines and penalties if we're abiding by the house rules. Yes, or you could request that they uh, otherwise enforce the rule. I wouldn't be so worried about the fine if they were going to uh, mm -hmm. subsequently comply with the rule. Right. There are other rules such as uh, you know the, uh, a dog can't bark uh, all day long and all night long. Not, right. that, not that you need a rule about barking. Most rules, most boards have a rule about disturbances and objectionable noises and things like that. Uh, those can be enforced. Uh, a dog that might uh, be threatening, that might lunge at people uh, in the elevator or in the common areas, that's not allowed. Any any behavior like that that's not going to be a, a burden or an interference with other residents in the community, that would not be allowed. And those rules can be enforced. Is there any need to periodically update the need for this? Or once you establish that an ESA is an ESA, throughout the life of that uh, animal, is it assumed that they are still within the, the same guidelines of the ESA that was initially approved and they can continue to live there until such time that they're not around anymore? Yeah, I think that uh, if there's a uh, uh, notion that maybe the disability has disappeared, is no longer relevant, is no longer prevalent. Conceivably, there could be a request to the board for a recertification, but usually I don't think those things uh, yeah. happen. And you can't see anxiety all the time. It's it's not visible. You know, for the for these purposes that are internal. Correct. They're, they're not like, oh, your your leg is better, you're walking fine, your ankle's you know, healed. So well, Also, the argument would be that I'm, I'm not suffering so much from anxiety because I have the pet, because right. I have the, the animal, rather. So if I have the, uh, if you say, well, you look normal to me today, yeah. so get rid of the animal animal well when i get rid of the animal i'm going to start suffering from the disability again right so it's since it's part of the treatment i think it would be difficult to claim or make a claim that the uh the animal is no longer necessary so what's interesting is that the board can't put restrictions on certain things where they would have on a pet so you go into some buildings there are some weight restrictions breed restrictions um there's a lot of things but the board can't place restrictions on ESAs on the type of animal that it is. And by type of animal, I'm assuming, is this my emotional support lizard? You know, <laughs> right? Like, it, where does it stop? So it could be a cat, it could be a dog, it could be hopefully not a llama. But if, if it's a verified ESA, I'm assuming they would have the ability to bring it in so long as they abide by the rules of the building, right? Yeah, so we're, we're, it's a good point. We're talking about two different things a little bit. One is where pets are prohibited in, in the community, and mm -hmm. this technically an emotional support animal is not a pet. Uh, but in any case, even if you had a no animal rule, an emotional support animal by New York State and federal law is allowed. Then there are other buildings that do have uh, restrictions. You can bring in a pet, but you can't bring in uh, a pit bull or another right. dog that might have be known as having aggressive mm -hmm. tendencies. Right. For instance, a rule like that would not apply. Uh, if you had a dog which had a history of creating problems, uh, you could say, We're we don't want that kind of a dog, that p particular dog in the community. But just because the dog is of a certain breed, a certain size, a certain weight, if you have those kinds of limitations in your community, they would be unenforceable. Right. So even though the board can't restrict 
um, the type of animal. They can't restrict the breed, the size, the weight. They do have the ability to restrict certain things, which you mentioned before, which are cleaning up after the dog or the pet that's outside or inside. No damage to the common property. That's a reasonable expectation of anybody. Being on leash while on the common property, that's a safety issue. No threatening behavior. While we can't say you can't have a pit bull because it's deemed to be a threatening or aggressive breed, that's different than your specific animal is being aggressive or threatening to us right now. Correct. Or if it even had a history, if you were someone right. who's applying for a, a, a pet and they came from another community and you learned from that community that they've had 16 different complaints about the dog being aggressive, I think that would be grounds for saying you can't bring that dog into this community. And it's also a liability for everybody involved. It's not. It could be a liability for the owner of that pet or that animal, too, where... If you had prior notice, I had, uh, I have uh, friends that are personal injury attorneys, and I remember when my kids were little and their kids were little, and I had a puppy that didn't like. It was a little dog that didn't like to, you know, have little children falling on it, and if occasionally she would like, you know, snap, never bite. They said, "Well, you you have constructive notice, you know, that your dog is uh, has the ability to do this. God forbid anybody should ever get hurt by your dog. You've been notified." I'm like, "Oh, thanks, friends." But it's true if you have a pre a pre existing behavior. And that's going to carry forward. That could be detrimental to all of the parties involved, and, and we don't want that. Correct. The board has the obligation to serve the needs of the uh, person with the ESA, but also to safeguard the welfare, welfare of everybody else in the community, of course. So in the event of, a, of alleged violations, um, I'm assuming that if somebody that's bringing in or wants to, needs to bring in an ESA, doesn't get approval... And they've given over all of the information that's correct. Um, what can they do about it? Who should they file a complaint with? There's a couple of places to go. Uh, and it's relatively easy to do. Uh, two places. We said there's a federal law and state law that uh, allow for accommodations to people with disabilities. So you can go to the federal government. It's the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD. Mm -hmm. They have a division that you can uh, file a complaint with. Uh, New York State has the New York State Division of Human Rights, which uh, has examiners. Both of these uh, departments have uh, uh, people who do investigations. They'll investigate the complaint, and if they find it has merit, they can take it to an administrative uh, hearing judge uh, and have a hearing about this if they can't get it resolved. Usually, uh, the HUD, my experience, if it's not too serious a case, will refer it to the New York State uh, Division of Human Rights to handle the, the, mm -hmm. the complaint. Um, and they will initially do an investigation and they will initially try to get things resolved easily. Right. Uh, if they try to educate the board, you know you have to do this. They try yeah. to educate the homeowner. So it's fines and, and education I've seen in the past with Division of Human Rights. And they're ser that's a serious um, legislation, legislature. I, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> that's a serious um, investigation and um, just arm of the government that will really look to protect the people that are um, filing the complaints. Especially if they find or feel that the board uh, or the owner of the uh, apartment complex is being discriminatory. If right. they think that the person, the board, is just has its worries or concerns, and what about this and what about that, and things can be worked out, mm -hmm. and you're, it's called conciliation. If they were, you'll work with them and work out an agreement, they'll be fine with that, and there won't be uh, too many consequences. But if they find that, uh, that you're 
doing everything you can to prevent this person from having their, uh, their disability accommodated, uh, they're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. And the applicant can recover uh, court-awarded penalties and punitive damages if they're found to be uh, wronged or discriminated against. If it goes that far and there's a finding, an adverse finding against the board, then they want to make a point. Uh, they want to teach that board a lesson, mm -hmm. and they want to set an example uh, because they know that decision will be published for other uh, attorneys of other boards right. to guide them as to what the penalties are going to be. There can even be uh, personal liability. Uh, if there's a finding that there were certain members of the board who were in particular uh, expressing uh, discriminatory intent. So there goes your DNO directors and officers coverage. You because you're not acting in sound uh, business judgment, you're discriminating. Correct. If there, if you go, if you get a complaint from uh, the Division of Human Rights and you try to fight it, the your insurance, your DNO uh, carrier will usually supply a defense. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're found to have been uh, uh, liable, uh, they probably are not going to pay for that sum of money right. that has to come out of the association treasury or conceivably your own pocket. Yeah. And the, the complainant, the person who's asking for the dog who you're, or, or animal ESA that you're uh, not agreeing to can also bring the action in, in federal or state court on their own wow. uh, with their own attorney. Uh, and if that happens and you lose, you have to pay their attorney's fees in addition to any other uh, consequences that the court may uh, come down with penalties, uh, punitive damages. Yeah. There aren't usually actual damages that many, but there could be, especially if you as a board say, in the meantime, while we're resolving this case, you can have that ESA uh, on the property. So I would always recommend to our communities, let the pets, let the animals stay in the meantime until yeah. it gets resolved. Because if the person suffers medical damage, claiming they have medical damage because they couldn't have the pet uh, for a long period of time while this case was in litigation, then you may indeed have actual damages. So I'm managing a building and I'm advising them to take certain steps to make sure that everybody is treated equally under this provision and so that they're set up in a way that they're not going to be um, sued, they're not doing things improperly, they're not going to have their DNO coverage waived. What are various um, tactics that the board could take to make sure that everybody is treated fairly and that this is in the building's um, policies and, and, and rules? So the most uh, basic thing and the easiest thing is to have a written policy uh, made up by and accepted by the board that is provided to anybody who puts in an application or mentions that they need uh, an accommodation. And that policy would not just be for ESAs, it would be for any person claiming a disability and needing an accommodation, which could be a handicap ramp, it could mm -hmm. be a curb cut, it could be any number of different uh, physical changes to the property or rule changes as well. Uh, and that policy would say what kinds of, uh, uh, of uh, accommodations will be made by the board and what the procedure is for applying for them. Um, if it's a physical uh, alteration, they have to provide plans that they're going to uh, have a contractor uh, uh, institute with uh, insurance and, and licenses. For an ESA, it would be the letter um, from yeah. the medical professional um, requesting that. 
It would uh, include also procedures for the person to be able to complain if we don't do the right thing. Right. Uh, notices that we would give them if they're in violation, if the rule is, if the, uh, the pet is a, or animal is creating problems in the community, how we would notify them and try to resolve those issues. So it should have all that information in it. So it's very clear right from the start what our obligations are and what our rights are and what their obligations and rights are. And it's similar to having an employee handbook when we have employees so that we can map out these certain issues. What are their, what, how can we handle them? How can we handle them with HR? It's a similar thing where we should have a, a guidebook, as you said, to really see, okay, before somebody requests, when they request, what happens after they request and, and while they have the animal there. So that's a, that's great to have. Exactly. It's a roadmap. Uh, and if you follow this and we follow it, as long as both sides follow it, there shouldn't be too many uh, difficulties. All right, great. Um, trying to think if we've hit all the topics that we wanted to talk about. Um, a few things that I would caution when you sure. do get one of these applications in. First of all, don't drag your feet. Mm -hmm. uh, there's certain uh, boards do say, well, we have to have a meeting, and we only have a meeting once a month, and that takes time, and that's somewhat reasonable. Uh, but if you say we only have a meeting every three or four months uh, and we're going to, you know, our next meeting is going to be three or four months from now, that's inordinate. And, yeah. uh, requiring somebody to wait that long before they get a, uh, a, a response, especially people who are by nature, uh, you know, uh, anxious yeah. and, and right. uh, somewhat, uh, you know, uh, unstable uh, emotionally to put them in that situation of yeah. uh, indefiniteness for that long, a long time. Uh, may be improper to put it off to have a meeting and then say oh now we have to go to the attorney and then another month and oh now we have to go to our insurance and that's another month yeah putting it off like that is going to be deemed uh, an effective denial mm -hmm. and discrimination so act on it uh, quickly also um, just know that you can't uh, demand records from uh, medical professionals you get the letter from the medical professional you can't say well we want to see records of the treatment that you've been been providing that's got to violate some hipaa laws exactly yeah. and it and it serves as discrimination you're not allowed to do that and right. you're again trying to delay and delay is a discrimination as much as a denial uh, would be um in addition we have a lot of boards that say to us they want to jump the gun and and make their own determination so we have some, some uh, one board said well the he goes to work without the dog and if it's an emotional support animal, he should have the dog with him all times. And if he doesn't take the work with him, then he's, it's not really needed. Um, and I tell them, you know, you're not the medical professional. If he's got a letter from a medical professional that says that, I don't know. Uh, I'm not a medical professional either. Yeah. I don't know what they need, when they need it, um, and how they need it. I do know that... Uh, one misconception that people a lot of times say when these things issues come up, they start yelling about the ADA. The ADA says this, the ADA says that. The ADA is not relevant to a community. It's a private community. It's only relevant to places of public accommodation. But it could be that they can't take the pet to work because of other rules. Right. Uh, the, 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 an employer may not be subject to the same or is not subject to the FHA, the Federal Housing Act. So maybe they can't take the dog, they have to suffer through the day, but they can't wait to get home to be with the emotional support animal. If it's a genuine application, these people have real needs. Uh, and if the pet is able to help them get through the day, I say that's an important thing, and we have to acknowledge that these are residents in our communities. We should be trying to help them rather than hurt them. 
but certainly don't jump the gun and pass yourselves off a board as medical professionals, as determining, well, they don't need it because of this, they don't need it because of that. Flip side of that, though, is a case that came up a while ago where someone claimed they needed an emotional support animal, but the dog was only there on weekends. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while in a week, and it, uh, for a week, and it turned out the person was dog-sitting for the sister's dog okay. and the, when the sister was away on the weekends or on vacation. That clearly is a, uh, a problem and not a genuine application. Yeah. Well, this is all great information. And this is something that I think a lot of people have been wanting to know about for a very long time. When ESA started coming up, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that's when I first started seeing a few cases more than ever before. And that's when it dragged on. But I fly a lot and I see a lot of, you know, emotional support animals on the plane. They're probably, you know, different circumstances than in an apartment. You don't have to prove it as much i think you can but now they're clamping down a little bit with the traveling but they have been they have been and there are um uh, at least i think on the federal level there have been discussions that i've seen in the past about trying to limit the emotional support animals to uh to not include farm animals i think was one category wild animals reptiles yeah because you do hear about some of these extreme cases of a horse uh, <laughs> yeah i think uh, there was an ostrich once or something uh, out an of ostrich, plane. a yeah. turkey um but so far as my understanding those uh, those talks have not resulted in rules or regulations um so right now the the laws are fairly open but fortunately we haven't had too many experiences yeah. at least and I, I know in long island of people uh, asking for things beyond the right. typical dog and, and cat uh, kinds of things. Another thing I wanted to bring up is we have boards that say, well, the person, when they when they bought in, they signed the no pet policy. Mm-hmm. Because we have a no pet policy and we have everybody sign. They acknowledge right. that they're buying into a community with a no pet policy. And they sign that and therefore, how can they possibly bring in an animal now? And isn't that some kind of a defense or a, a, something we could claim? And it's not. Yeah. Uh, first of all, as we've said, the law technically says an animal in ESA Correct. is not a pet. But uh, even if it was a no animal policy that they signed, uh, there was a co-op once that uh, wanted to bring someone in. They claimed they had a disability, but they didn't disclose it. And they indeed signed something. It wasn't a pet rule. It was something similar. Uh, and the court said that's fine because if they had signed that no pet or if they refused to sign the no pet policy, you wouldn't have you would have found some other reason not to let them move mm-hmm. in. That was in a co-op situation mm-hmm. where the board has the right to bring somebody to, has to, to to deny an applicant. Right. But even in a condominium and a homeowners association, if you don't sign that, would the board exercise a right of first refusal or find some other way to try to prevent your entering into into the community if you indicated that you were coming in with a pet or with an animal rather to a no pet policy mm-hmm. community? So the fact that they signed that uh, prior to moving in or at the time of moving in is really irrelevant in these kinds of cases. So if people want to get in touch with you, Ed, they can call you directly at 631-265-5550. That's 631-265-5550. And I'll give out your email too. It's Taylor at taylor-eldridge.com. That's T-A-Y-L-O-R hyphen E-L-D-R-I-D-G-E dot com. And um, I thank you for coming in. That was, I think, really helpful for me, too. I think it cleared a lot of things up for, for us and I think for a lot of boards that are out there and maybe even a lot of people that are looking for ESAs or they have pets and they're thinking of ESAs or they want to know what the process is. 
Um, it's been super helpful. Again, if you uh, want to email the show, send us an email, nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com, nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. We love it if you'd subscribe and share the podcast. The more ears, the better for us. And uh, we'll keep on making these as long as you keep wanting them. So we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. And thank you for coming in. Thank you very much, Mark.